Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. And tomorrow, according to people who study such things, uh, the Reserve Bank is expected to raise interest rates again. This is because of the bank's role in keeping inflation in check. But research out from the Australia Institute points to company profits and supply side factors, including war and natural disasters, as other drivers of inflation. So why so little focus on company profits in the narrative around solutions to the inflation crisis? Uh, Jeff Sparrow is author of a book called Crimes Against Nature, which incidentally has just been shortlisted for the New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards. And uh, he's been thinking about these things. And Jeff, it's good to have you again. Hello. Hello. Always good to talk to you too, even in the context of another bleak interest rate rise. Yeah. And I mean, what do you think, though, Jeff, is going on with the narrative around the inflation crisis? Um, you know, the, the Australia Institute study... Um, is saying one thing and we're hearing such a different uh, focus when it comes to other commentary on interest rates and the like. Why is that? Yeah. So, so let's start by putting it in context. And I think it's difficult to overstate just how bleak these interest rate rises are for a huge swathe of the population. So this is now uh, a fresh 10-year high. If, if this interest rate goes ahead on um, Tuesday... Um, this will mean that the average mortgage holder, they've got something like the average mortgage is about $500. This means that they're paying in excess of an extra $900 a month since the rates started to rise. That's an extraordinary um, amount of money. To put it in context, you might remember that the Victorian government tried to offset cost of living um, pressures by giving people an energy rebate of $250. Well, if $250 is supposedly significant, we're talking about people who are now paying more than $11,000 extra than they budgeted for. And I think we are very soon going to see significant numbers of people losing their houses. And of course, you know, I reckon there's probably a few people out there, Triple R listeners, who are hearing this and thinking, well, you know, screw um, screw the house owners. I've been locked out of the property market. I'm never going to, uh, you know, own a house. Why should I? What's happening to people who have got mortgages? But the irony of all of this is interest rate rises are driving down property values. It's still even, it's now even harder for you know, new buyers to get into property because of, because um, you know it's so much harder to get a loan that you can afford with these higher interest rates. And at the same time, if you're completely locked out of the property uh, property market, you're paying rent, and rents have absolutely gone through the roof as a as a um, partly as a result of these interest rate rises because property owners are passing on the. Um, the increased mortgage repayments to, um, to 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 renters. So it's a kind of dire situation for lots and lots of people. And I think you know, uh, some respects we haven't seen the worst of it yet because people who have been on fixed rate mortgages have avoided um, these rises. But all of a sudden, they're going to be having to you know falling off the mortgage cliff. And um, yeah, I think it's going to be really grim time. For us. 
And I mean, that analysis from the Australia Institute it suggests that what is one of the main drivers of inflation, as Carly mentioned in the introduction, is not so much wage growth, but corporate profits. And their analysis showed how, you know, that the large supermarket change, banks and the likes of Qantas registered massive profits recently, yet we're still facing these um, increases to, you know, rising interest rates and that sort of thing. And, and I suppose the um, the, the, the method that the, the Reserve Bank is, is undertaking there is to try to kind of rebalance things so we don't contribute to inflation going forward. But how do we kind of balance that when you might just see prices increasing anyway because people are expecting that and ultimately that you know appears to be, for at least some companies, just putting more in their pockets while still harming the, the sort of broader population? Yeah, that's, that, that's right. I mean, the orthodoxy on inflation... Um, you know, harks back to the 1970s, and the argument is that it's linked to um, rising wages and ordinary people splashing around too much cash, you know, and because they have all of this extra cash in the economy, the economy's over, and prices uh, are going up. And, you know, you don't have to be Einstein to see the obvious problem with that at the moment. I mean, who knows anybody around you who suddenly, you know, who, who at the moment feels that they have too much money and, and <laughs> spending too much money on a luxury. If In someone fact, complained to me I... about that, I'd be feeling sorry for them, Jeff. <laughs> um, not the, not the people know, I hang out with. <laughs> well, exactly. Not too many triple R listeners. And, and, of course, wages haven't been rising for a long, long, um, a, a, a long, long time. After all, if you've got inflation at, what, 7.4% as it is at the moment, that means that merely to retain your current status, you need to be getting a wage rise of 7.4% each year. And I don't know about you guys, but, you know, there aren't too many people who, you know, who are able to renegotiate a salary increase of 7.4% um, at the moment. And as you say, this um is arguing that the, the inflationary pressures are in fact coming from these huge profits that corporations uh, are making and it's that which is overheating um, the um, economy. So in, to answer the question as to why the argument is being put the way it is, and more or less explicitly, the strategy of the Reserve Bank is to drive down living standards of ordinary people. I mean, that, that is the whole point of this strategy. It's based on the idea that people are spending too much money, and the strategy is to prevent them spending that money so it can make the conditions in which they're living harder. Well, why, why is this the orientation? I mean, it's partly, I think, to do with the nature of the banking industry. I mean, at a really kind of crude level, the people who are making these decisions are massively insulated from the consequences of their actions. I mean, you know, the governor of the Reserve Bank is on a base salary of close to a million dollars each year. And uh, I think the average level of property property ownership um, amongst the Australian parliament, I think uh, parliamentarians, something like 2.1 properties uh, for every person in parliament. With, you know, people like Albanese are... Uh, is a major um, is is a, ma- a major property owner, you know, uh, earning considerable amounts of money from from rentals. So that's part of the argument, right? That the people make decisions are are insulated from the costs they're inflicting on everyone else. But I think more than that, it's also that the financial infrastructure that we have now was you know reconstructed during the neo era, and it only goes in one direction. It's designed to make ordinary people um, carry the burden of this situation. And as you said in the introduction, it's, we 
we leave aside the corporate profit, think about the other drivers of inflation at the moment. So one of them is the war in Ukraine, um, not something that most of us would see ourselves as, some, as being responsible for, yet we are the ones who are supposed to, you know, like bear the burden for that. But the other um, factor, and I think this is super interesting, the other factor is rising food prices. What's causing those food prices to rise? Well, uh, part of it is the, the extraordinary extreme weather that Europe has been enduring it. So heat waves and floods have meant crop failures all across um, Europe, which has led to increases in the cost of food, which is driving uh, inflationary pressures. Well, the banking sector and instruments like the Reserve Bank are manifestly not designed to problems like climate change. And, and, they've, and they've sort of said that, haven't they, Like that, that they're not these tools such as putting up interest rates aren't actually yeah, designed to deal with these what they call supply-side issues, which is it's sort of the whole thing is a little becoming more muddled the more, think, the more I think about it, Jeff, because as you said, you know, wages aren't rising. They've actually cut in real terms um, and we've yeah. had the biggest cut that we've had since records began going by some analysts. And But as soon as we go to those kind of questions, we start to then hear class warfare um, being kicked off. And, you know, this happened last week with regards to the superannuation policies where the the um, treasurer said they're going to start to tax at the normal rate profits on superannuation earnings on balances over three million dollars right so it's pretty technical this sort of stuff but overarching it seems like a marginal issue compared to people losing their homes and the like but that's where the discussion's gone in news media so why do you think we always end up in this sort of class warfare type area when we're talking about sort of monetary type policy yeah, so, so make no, no mistake, this is class warfare. It's mm-hmm. class warfare directed from the rich against the rest of it. I mean, that sounds like rhetoric, but it's not, as I say, explicitly these interventions supposed to drive down living standards. That's what they are intended to do. They are meant to mean you have less money to spend, whether that's on, you know, food or holidays or, you know, your sick children or anything else. It's meant to prevent you being able to, you know, inject cash into the economy. So the whole intervention is based on the idea that we need to tighten our belts in order to save the economy. And while we tighten, corporate profits continue to increase. And I think we need to look at this in the context too, that in the context of an economy that has been over the last few decades reformed in inverted commas so that the other potential strategies for um, dealing with problems like inflation have been totally ruled out of court to the point that it is not even being um, at all. I mean, so, so you know, in, in previous eras, there have been all sorts of ways that people can deal with things like um, inflation. So, so, you know, measures as simple as price freezes on, um, you know, on items. But because... Um, the market has been enshrined as the kind of central facet of that society, something that cannot be tampered with in any way, shape or form. Any kind of measure that, that, that interferes with the, the running of the market has just been totally ruled out mm. of the 
out of the conversation. So there is one lever that they can pull, and that lever is the lever that makes the living standards of ordinary people um, worse. And honestly, guys, I, I mean, I, I think it's kind of an extraordinary moment. I, I just do not know what the political response is going to be, you know, when thousands of people start to lose, which yeah. is... And, and sorry, as, you, as you say, Jeff, sorry to interrupt, but I mean, the, the RBA has, you know, one lever to address this issue, and that is, you know, um, raising or lowering interest rates. In a way, though, I mean, the government has um, taken a few pot shots at the Reserve Bank. Um, do you find or think that they're kind of an easy scapegoat to perhaps avoid these much more difficult, longer term questions about how to reform the economy to you know, make sure that those who are doing it really tough don't do it even more tough into the sort of short to immediate term? Because, I mean, even despite all the coverage in, in a lot of the, the media landscape about this kind of tinking at the edges, really, of, of superannuation and like, there was news poll out today suggesting 70% of voters, um, you know, back the government's plan to raise tax on super. So there's kind of a lot of noise in the news media when perhaps the, the voting public might be much more receptive to broader and more far-reaching interventions to kind of change things for the better? Oh, look, 100%. When you think about the the, the way the economy is being deregulated and a key part of that, like putting non-elected figures in charge of monetary policy, a key aspect of that is taking that outside democratic debate. And for the government, that's got an immediate advantage. They can, as you say, take pot shots at the reserve bank while saying nothing to do with us. And it's, you know, like, it's absolutely crazy. These are, in some ways, the the zenith of political decisions, right? They have, like, really profound consequences for for people's lives. But we have to pretend that there's nothing political at all. This is just being done by an independent expert who is totally independent from any kind of political or or social, social factors. And I don't know. I mean, I keep coming back to you know, the experience of the last decade or so where ordinary people have been told again and again and again that you need to get onto the property ladder. And if you don't, you're going to be screwed because, you know, you're never going to be able to out. So people were told, take out whatever loan you can because if you don't, you'll never own a house. That's exactly what they did, and now they are being punished for it. And punished to the point where, you know, losing your home to the banks is one of the most traumatic things that kind of can happen to, you know, to, to, to a family. And basically the government is saying there is nothing that we can do. So they might make noise criticising the uh, Reserve Bank, but they won't actually make any policy changes because, as I said, the whole strategy is predicated on using living standards. So anything that they did to alleviate these pressures would undermine the strategy. And so they're not going to do it. And so essentially we have bipartisan agreement that um, a certain percentage of the population are going to lose their homes and that's just the way it's going to be. And I don't know. I mean, it'll be really interesting to see. I, I reckon there will be an abs- absolute elemental rage about this. Yeah, I mean, now I'm worried <laughs> more than I was before, but that's okay. <laughs> that's all right. I mean, it's important to talk about these issues. And I guess what was just on my mind when you were speaking, Jeff, was, um, you know, just reflecting also on your on your book, Crimes Against Nature and other things, is there's a lot that 
that you know markets are responsible for, but there's also the sort of impact of, of climate and other you know natural disaster um, causing issues as well that we can we can be addressing. So you know there are solutions beyond interest rates actually that we could be focusing on. But I've just introduced that right when we have to end our conversation with you, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so you can't even talk. Save that. it for next month, Jeff. <laughs> just think yeah, about no it and worries. come back to us. Yeah, and um, it's always yeah, good I'll to be. have you. Okay. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Jeff. Jeff Barry, author and lecturer in the Centre for Advancing Journalism. And, um, yeah, should have wished him well as well um, for the Premier's Literary Award. Uh, Got our fingers crossed for success there, although he is up against Helen Garner and others. So, you know, who knows what will happen there. Good luck to you, Jeff. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. The Royal Commission into RoboDebt continues to uncover remarkable instances of shoddy decision-making and the shirking of responsibility that went into the making of the automatic debt recovery scheme. Last week, former Government Services Minister Stuart Robert gave evidence that indicated he'd lied to the Australian public out of Cabinet solidarity, as many thousands of Australians grappled with the often traumatic experience of being hit with debts they never should have incurred in the first place. Journalist Rick Morton has been reporting forensically on RoboDebt for some years. He has a feature essay in the current issue of The Monthly and joins us now on the line. Welcome, Rick. Thanks for spending some time with us this morning. Morning, team. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. And, I mean, you know more than most about just how this scheme came to be and and what went into its uh, facilitation. As you've covered the the Royal Commission, what has kind of surprised you most out of the revelations we've heard so far? Oh, God, there's been so much. But I, I think the thing that we learned, we never knew this because the government kept it a secret, but we learned in the very first hearing uh, that there was legal advice in November, October 2014 from the Department of Social Services before RoboDebt even began that said it was not legal. Um, and that has really been the kind of, to, to borrow a biblical phrase, the original sin at the heart of this program. They, they had the advice. What the rest of this commission has been trying to figure out is at what level was that advice shared? Um, it made it into at least some of the, you know, the original executive minute or the brief that went to Scott Morrison as the minister, um, but then it suddenly disappeared from the new policy proposal. There was no mention of the fact that there would need to be legislative change for this scheme. And then, you know, having committed that, you know, uh, omission, there were all these other criticisms that started to bubble up about Robert Ed in late 2016 and 2017 when the full online um, compliance system started, you know, hammering people with fake debts. Um, and then there was another question then about, you know, why didn't anyone look into whether this thing was OK? There was legal criticism at the time. So those are the two kind of threads, I guess. There was how did this thing even begin and then how does it continue when there was more than enough um, criticism, critique uh, and legal mind analysis from really superior legal minds saying that this thing shouldn't exist? And that's what we've been trying to unpick and the level of collusion, I guess, between the Australian Public Service and the ministers involved is something that not even my cynical mind expected. Yeah, and I wonder then, with um, last week's evidence from Stuart Robert, the former Minister for Human Services, as Dylan just mentioned, Rick, um, where he blamed Cabinet Solidarity for telling the rest of us mistruths about the illegal scheme that was just shocking for a lot of people. Were you were you shocked by that? After I mean, I suppose you've been covering the Royal Commission for some time by then. I've been covering the Royal Commission for some time, and I've got I've had some dealings with Stuart Robert um, directly and indirectly over my years when he was covering. Well, when he was the same minister for the National Disability Insurance Scheme, and even still, 
I was absolutely blown away by the fact that he would say that under oath. So he's under oath saying, you've got to believe me because I'm under oath. Um, but also I lie because it's my job. Um, that was literally the, the extent of what he said. Um, he, he admitted not just to having a problem with using income averaging to raise debts. And for your listeners, really quickly, um, Social Security is based on fortnightly income assessments. And what they were doing was taking annual data from the tax office and just averaging it out over 26 fortnights and saying you earn an even amount every year, which is just not true for people who earn you know, uneven income, who have multiple jobs, casual jobs, gig economy jobs, all that kind of stuff, right? And so he knew mathematically that there was a problem. He knew it from the very moment he became the minister and said he raised it with his department. This is Stuart Roberts. But then also, once he got the final Solicitor General's legal advice in late 2019, November, he still went before the National Press Club of Australia and gave an answer that said the scheme was appropriate and fine. Now, there is nothing in the Ministerial Code of Conduct that says that you have to lie to the Australian people. In fact, it says you have to be honest in your dealings with them. Um, and to think that Cabinet Solidarity requires you to introduce misinformation rather than just defend government policy is a really interesting misreading, I would think, of what Cabinet Solidarity actually is. And I suspect Stuart Robert has gotten himself into a little bit of a pickle Mm. Um, yeah, it's quite remarkable. And I mean, as you say, one of the real bombshells to emerge from the Royal Commission is that there was that legal advice um, about robo-debt right sort of at the beginning of, of its inception back in 2014. But, but as you mentioned too, I mean, anyone can tell that, that a scheme that attempts to average out income over a year for anyone who might be on welfare and dip in and out of employment as a casual or through the gig economy will naturally have sort of spikes in income, which will then drop off at other periods of time, um, you know, which Correct. highlights how they need to be in welfare in the first place. But based on, on the documentation that you've managed to uncover, I mean, was there ever a proper reckoning with the fact that this scheme just didn't really stack up, it didn't really make sense and wouldn't serve at all as a form of um, sort of proper welfare for those who might need it? Yeah. Do you know what? And that's such a good question because no. And so apart from the legal aspect of this, which is crucial and significant and horrendous, that is, this scheme was illegal from the beginning. There is a moral um, element to this in that they just didn't care that it was wrong. They didn't care that people were being slapped with debts that they not just should never have incurred, but that were not real. The debts didn't exist, as you know, Peter Hanks QC, one of the most eminent constitutional lawyers in Australia, said they were using magic, essentially, to come up with these numbers. And their justification for it, when there was concern about the process, was simply, oh, well, we give customers, that is, welfare recipients or former welfare recipients, because this was going back in time six years, um, we give them an opportunity to respond. So essentially saying, we've come up with a spurious means of accounting for your income. We're going to send you a letter. Whether you get the letter or not, we don't really care. And we're not going to give you a number on the letter to call. Um, we're just going to ask you to go online and update your information. By the way, we're going to outsource our responsibility as a government to get that information. We're going to make you go to your employers from six, seven years ago and find payslips. Too bad if they don't exist anymore. Um, and then we're going to get you to argue to us that you shouldn't have a debt. Um, so it was a wrong analysis. It outsourced the onus of proof and the burden um, onto people who often had nothing. Um, and to people who just really couldn't get the information that Centrelink required. And even in those circumstances where they did, 
the whole change under RoboDev was that they could give what they called the primacy of the weight of the evidence um, to the averaging in the first instance. So Centrelink could still tell you, no, we don't believe you, um, and we'll swipe you with the debt anyway. And people just had no power to respond. And there was almost no discussion at any level between any of the public servants, and I'm talking mid-ranking public servants here. The people on the front line were amazing, and they knew this was a problem. Um, but mid-ranking public servants up to the executive level, no one seemed to care that they were badgering poor people because it was going to save the budget at one point $7 billion. Yeah, and it hasn't saved the budget. Um, but I, w- I wonder, Rick, too, with regards to your reporting when I was reading your article in The Monthly, I'd, I'd missed that Centrelink you know, changed its processes and didn't even require employers to hand over pay slips so the averaging process essentially could never have been correct and as you say the onus went the other way but I mean you also speak about so-called behavioral nudges for ways that debts were um, sought and sought to be recovered can you speak to that because that yeah just behavioral nudges sounds really quite nefarious amongst all of the other stuff as well well I mean and and there's a whole um, internet literature about this about you know when you use behavioral science for nefarious means they call it dark patterns um, which is essentially getting people to do what you want without telling them what you want them to do. Um, and in this instance, for, for a bad purpose, that would harm that person. And in this instance, what they did was there was a whole behavioural um, economics, um, behavioural science unit within the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. And they borrowed some of that expertise to work on robo-debt. And they, they freely, the architects of um, the robo-debt program, Jason Ryman and Scott Britton, um, who were in the Department of Human Services, they almost gloated about this, I understand, when they first gave evidence at the end of last year by saying, yeah, no, we had, we incorporated that into the design of the letters. And another person gave evidence that they literally, you know, they knew that the only way RoboDeck could save the budget at that point in the very early stages, the $1.2 billion that they had forecast over the forward estimates, the only way they could do that was if people never spoke to a compliance officer. And the only way they could make sure people never spoke to a compliance officer was to nudge them away from doing that. And that included deliberately leaving off a telephone number that people could call when they got the first letter that said, hey, you've got a discrepancy. And what they wanted people to do was go into this online platform. And because if people had questions about their debts, um, compliance officers, you know, still couldn't go through all of the tools in their old toolkit because Robert had changed the process, but at least they could still ask questions. But this wasn't happening. And they were designing, essentially, they were hurting people through these gates um, because it was the only way they could save the money. Um, and they didn't care. They didn't yeah. care that they were cutting out due process in the, um, uh, along the way. It's amazing and, and so deeply sad. I mean, I think a lot of us suspect that some of the sort of processes of bureaucratic web of Centrelink might be set up in a way that discourages people to kind of, you know, um, make complaints and, and seek sort of compensation if they might be hit with an improper debt and that kind of thing. But to see actually how it's designed is just absolutely startling. We're speaking with Rick Morton, journalist with the Saturday paper about his coverage of the Royal Debt, uh, RoboDebt Royal Commission. He's also got an essay in the current edition of the monthly on this very topic. And I want to ask you about what this 
case so far has revealed about the relationship between government MPs and the public service and the culture within the public service as well when administering a scheme such as RoboDebt? Because there's been some revelations of, um, you know, in one instance, a, a senior bureaucrat effectively bullying an employee that had kind of halted one aspect of the scheme when they could see that it wasn't delivering on its purpose and was starting to administer these false debts. So, so what's your take on that sort of relationship? You alluded to it as, as collusion before between government MPs and, and the public service. Well, I think in, in many respects with RoboDebt, uh, a lot of this stuff happened in advance of ministerial pressure. So there was broad ministerial pressure from the Abbott government onwards to save... Um, you know, Abbott was talking about, Tony Abbott was talking about the debt and deficit disaster, and there was this huge drive to cut red tape and to claw back debt, um, particularly business and personal debt. And there was a letter written um, to Prime Minister Turnbull when he took over advising him about the debt strategy that Abbott had signed. So there was a lot of that broad pressure, but no-one said, hey, you should design a system that goes online only and targets robo-debt um, welfare victims um, for fake debt. That was designed within the Department of Human Services. So there was a lot of senior executives who took the initiative, quote-unquote, to push this thing. And from what we've seen so far, um, without ministerial direction, certainly we haven't seen any evidence of that in some of these cases, whether the public servants, having realised what they'd done and having created this kind of web of deception, continued it. And so they actively sought to mislead the Commonwealth Ombudsman by withholding documents and legal advice. We've got the Chief Counsel at the Department of Human Services who actively sought um, to withhold... Uh, certain legal advices, you know, claims not to have seen other critical legal advice, doesn't know anything about the drafting of external uh, instructions that would have got a legal opinion on this from the Australian government solicitor in 2017 that was never sent, um, withheld documents from the Victorian coroner um, that would have gone to the mental state of a, um, a robot victim who um, killed himself after receiving the second debt letter. All of these things that public servants did, that the ministers... Um, in some cases, we were never even briefed about, um, and particularly from the Department of Human Services side. We've seen you know, a Deputy Secretary, uh, Melissa Golightly, who unfortunately died in late uh, 2021, who will never be able to answer these questions, but who, in the documentary evidence alone, has been all over this program and seemed to be largely um, pushing it and concealing it, um, you know, concealing its illegality. Um, from some of the people above her. Do you think, Rick, it's... I mean, we will find out through the Royal Commission process into robo-debt why people acted like that. Do you, do you think we'll end up with those kinds of questions answered? Because why would a public service department act like that? I mm, know. Uh, it's you know Maybe I'm naive, but I still can't get my head around it. I mean, the view that's been put to me by people who used to work in the public service and who have watched it deteriorate is that there really was that that change in atmosphere from John Howard onwards where there was no longer Frank and Steelers advice, or at least it was on the way out because public servants were being rewarded as political, rewarded as political acolytes, um, political appointments. There was uh, It became an aggressive career strategy to do whatever the minister wanted. In fact, Renee Leon, the former secretary of the Department of Human Services, who was terminated by Stuart Roberts, um, gave advice that, public servants at the most senior levels who were seen as more responsive, quote-unquote, to the government agenda were rewarded. And so that it became almost a secondary chessboard. So you've got the, the main game in politics, which is becoming elected and running the country that way. And then there was a secondary avenue, which was 
rising through the ranks of the public service, becoming winning favour and patronage from the government of the day, and then you've got quite a lot of power yourself to do things and a lot of money, I might add. And so there's that factor as well, which has increasingly been the norm, and, and certainly it's something that absolutely needs to change. Yeah. Um, but also, I think it's just broadly, you know, people in those positions just don't understand what poverty is like and what um, having few resources does to your level of choice. They just don't get it, and therefore they don't care um, when they design these things to really get it right. Even if it was always elite, I mean, there's still debt collection happening now. Is what I'm trying to say from Centrelink, mm. and that still hurts people. It might not be illegal, we don't know, but it's not designed with any human interface in mind. Yeah. And, I mean, Malcolm Turnbull is up today. No doubt you'll be watching the Royal Commission proceedings um, closely once again. Rick, what are you expecting there? Yeah, well, Malcolm Turnbull's an interesting one because he was Prime Minister, obviously, when the massive amounts of criticism of this scheme began to unfold. It's when the public first got a look in late 2016, early 2017 at that something might be going wrong. And, in fact, Malcolm Turnbull took at least a keen interest in the sense that he forwarded... Um, well, he told Alan Tudge, as human service minister, to cut short his London holiday and to come home from the UK to deal with the crisis, but also sent him, in early 2017, an article by Peter Martin um, in you know, the Fairfax Press at the time, which appeared to call out Robodet as being illegal. Um, in fact, it did call it out and said this thing... That is not consistent with the legislation in any way, shape or form. He sent that to Alan Tudge. And Alan Tudge forwarded it to his people and said, this seems to contain the clearest critique. Can you advise me on it? And that's kind of the end of what we've seen of Malcolm Turnbull's involvement so far. So they'll be asking him about his version of events from that side and what he was told by his ministers to apparently reassure him um, that this thing should continue. And I have to ask, Rick, um, I've been seeing, you know, clips of, of the Royal Commissioner on telly and uh, she seems like an extraordinary um, commissioner. I wouldn't want to get one of her looks myself, but I'm glad um, as a citizen that she's in the chair. What's it been like being in the room with, with such an eminent commissioner? She's, she's incredible and she's just impeccably impartial. I just I know for a fact that she has made no concessions to the way this thing runs. She runs it as a tight ship. Nothing is briefed. Nothing gets out before it's heard in the room. Um, the process is above board completely. She's incredible. She's got the mind, um, you know, she's got an incredible legal mind, but also an incredible way of relaying legal points in layman's terms that still really cut to the precise kind of issue, which is something that's quite rare sometimes when you've got these legalistic arguments. She just uses everyday language to cut to the point. And it's quite something to watch because people can't wriggle out of that. It's very hard to disagree with something that's caged in everyday language. So she's a phenomenal power. Um, and there have been a few witnesses, at least, who have tried to go up against her and have lost. Yeah. So, Not surprised by that. Um, well, it's, it's been really enlightening having you as part of today's show, Rick. And, and thanks also for your reporting on this issue. It hasn't necessarily you know, been reported across the whole media landscape as, as well as it possibly should have. But your own work through the Saturday paper and the monthly and the likes of Luke Henriquez Gomes in The Guardian and Royce Kermlobs as well have, have kept a really close focus on this. Um, and you know, it's something that, that really should lead to some substantive change, um, hopefully. So thanks so much for the work you do and for spending some time with us this morning on Triple R. 
I really appreciate it, guys. Thanks so much. Thanks. Rick Morton there from the Saturday paper. Um, He's got a new essay in the current edition of The Monthly, kind of unpacking what we've found out so far from the RoboDebt Royal Commission, and you can read his ongoing coverage as well um, via the kind of Schwartz Media website. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. And tickets are about to go on sale for a first of its kind Acme exhibition, which uh, goes to the role of women on screen. It's called Goddess, Power, Glamour and Rebellion and will open next month. And uh, to tell us all about it, we've got Dr. Britt Moromstad with us in studio. She is the Experience and Engagement um, Director over at ACME and it's great to have you here. Thanks for coming Thank in. You. Thanks for having me. And uh, who are the goddesses that we're going to see in this exhibition? Yes, that's the $50 million question, isn't it? It's um, a really, I think it's been a really tough gig for the curators to have to carve out those, those specific um, women. So there's, there's a whole range from across, you know, right from the start of um, films right through to contemporary times. And the curators have worked really hard to try and, I guess, tell stories that speak to the contemporary moment but sort of pitch the goddess in a bit of a new light. So we tend to think of the screen goddess as someone who's a bit beautiful, who is a, is a passive sometimes victim of the screen industry. So there's a real focus in this exhibition on finding the women who have been a bit defiant and rebellious and disruptive and fought against some of those stereotypes. So um, the women that that are focused on are sometimes a bit surprising. So Marilyn Monroe is one of those, and perhaps we don't think of her quite in that sort of disruptive mould, but also a range of other women such as Marlena Dietrich, Anna Mae Wong, uh, right through to people like uh, Gina Davis and Thelma and Louise or Michelle Yeoh in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. So there's a real range of um, different women and characters who have been chosen to tell a story about the ways in which the films they were in have shaped screen culture and our ideas of femininity. Yeah, and so when you're, you're putting together and the curators are putting together an exhibition of this nature that does challenge some of those ways that women have traditionally been objectified and portrayed as these kind of passive, fig- passive figures, is it looking at how their performance on screen itself has, a, has kind of subverted some of that prejudice or is it what's, what they've been doing behind the scenes to challenge kind of gender sort of um, uh, prejudice more broadly across society? It's a bit of both and it sort of depends on the context really. Um, for some women, their mere presence can be a bit subversive. Um, I'm thinking about Anna Mae Wong and her role in, you know, 1930s cinema as an Asian American woman. She, you know, she struggled to find roles that were really um, satisfying or well-rounded. I mean, it was such a pretty blatantly racist environment. So, in some senses, her existence was a bit subversive. But then. What we find through through the films that she's in was that um, the narratives themselves work to undermine some of that subversion. So it's always this tension, this push and pull between um, 
this, the potential, the sort of potential for disruption and then sometimes the narrative shutting down the power of that. But in the middle, in between that, we get the great pleasure of watching that process happen. And, um, yeah, that's really important, I think. Yeah, through the, through the exhibition itself. I mean, I was interested also in um, depictions of, of age. You know, yeah. I think a lot of... Uh, you know, women, not just in, in, in film culture but in others, um, music and the like, um, feel invisible in their older ages. But what did you find in looking at women on screen um, who are you know, not in their 20s yeah. or something? It, um, well, I think, I mean, the sad reality is that women have been sort of disappeared once they hit that 40 mark is the, is the line that many women have talked about. I think that's changing slightly and I think when if we look at for instance this year and the Academy Awards and the range of women who uh, have been nominated there's a sense that that might be slightly changing but there is a there is a section in the exhibition which looks at what happens when a woman is on screen and she doesn't conform to that sort of youthful beauty you know the idealized object and um that's where we find women like Bette Davis and Joan Crawford um fighting it out and whatever happened to Baby Jane, for instance, and the rise of the hagsploitation genre, that beautiful subgenre of horror, which is um, quite alarming. It's obviously quite a pejorative term, but also really interesting because the, the women in the films are taking so much pleasure and delight in their performance that it's it's kind of just electrifying to watch. So it is interesting when when women manage to get on screen when they're older, what happens to them and there there is again that that kind of narrative drive to I guess it's a it's a bit punishing really. So it's it's a genre that's um sort of punishes the woman but at the same time we get so much pleasure from it that, you know, there's there's a sort of unsettling there that's not entirely just about shutting women down. Yeah, and I understand the exhibition will sort of showcase very well-known figures such as Marilyn Monroe and, and Margaret Robbie and the like, but also lesser-known lesser known figures as well who might have played a kind of behind-the-scenes role in the film industry. Can you talk about some of those uh, people and personalities who are included who people might not be aware of? Yeah, so there's... Obviously, Hollywood is the big, the big piece here, but there's been a real um, effort to try and figure some sort of discovery pieces in there. So one of them is Mina Kumari from the film Pakiza, um, so a really famous Bollywood um, actor. And the film that's highlighted, it's really sort of focusing on her performance in that film and the story that that um, that is pulled out in the exhibition is around the ways in which she, again, sort of um, undermined what was expected of her in terms of femininity and um, that happened in a number of ways through the costumes that she wore that weren't um, that didn't conform to gender standards and to um, the ways in which over time, because the film took 14 years to shoot, so it was a bit of a, an interesting one, um, over time she aged. And so, yeah, what you saw on screen at the end was very different to that beautiful idealised figure that that was at the start. So that's that's kind of one of those um, stories that may be a discovery story for some people. Um, there's other people behind the scenes. So there's, for instance, um, women like um, Alice Guy Blaché, who's actually very well known in cinema circles, but 
has has been written out of the narrative and she was really the first female director and her film from 1906 is in there called The Consequences of Feminism. It's a really fantastic little film. And then other women, like an Australian woman, uh, Fearless Nadia, who went and worked in Bollywood in the 30s as a stunt woman. So, yeah, there's lots of those little discovery pieces throughout the exhibition. Very cool. And so what about television um, in the context. So is it mainly film that you're looking at with, with Goddess? Yeah, it is, it's mainly film, but there is television is in there. And I think increasingly so, you know, um, thinking about the Goddess now, it feels like television is playing such an important part of presenting us with some really meaty roles for women. And one, one thing that I haven't mentioned that's in the exhibition, and I, I guess I should have given I'm from Acme, is that there'll be a lot of screen content and um, we have got a range of uh, supercuts, so pieces of film edited together to give you a sense around a theme. And in the supercuts there'll be lots of um, content from television that shows women, you know, femme fatales or women um, fighting back according to the different themes of the exhibition. But, yeah, television is really... There's some great things happening there, I think. Speaking with Dr Britt Romstad, the Director of Experience and Engagement over at ACME, about an upcoming exhibition that kicks off next month on the 5th of April, Goddess Power, Glamour and Rebellion, which uh, charts the um, women's represent- representation and agency on screens going back, I think, over over a century and a very, very long time frame. I wonder if you can just speak a bit more about what the exhibition will actually look like, what kinds of things will be mm. included. Yeah, um, so the exhibition has around, well, over 150 objects and that includes costumes so lots of beautiful costumes many of which have never been to Australia before things like um, film props and ephemera posters drawing we've also have uh, large screens with um, yeah digital content um, and an immersive yeah immersive screens and an interactive is the word I was looking for there, um, where people can play with a goddess identity of their own and um, think about what that might look like in the future. So the the space itself has been designed by exhibition designer Anna Triglone, and we've worked with her on previous exhibitions um, like Wonderland, and it will be really stunning. She's she's created this bold use of colour that that moves us through from what we would, I guess, associate with um, really uh, stereotype femininity, starting with a pink sort of colour scheme, moving through to a really deep red as we go through into some of the meatier parts of the exhibition, uh, which finishes with um, fighting back. So um, the, the, the colour scheme and the design of the exhibition will be pretty stunning. We've uh, commissioned bespoke mannequins to wear the costumes, so they're these really amazing glossy pink-red uh, mannequins with wigs. So it will be a pretty spectacular experience, and I think it will appeal to people you know, on a range of different levels, whether you're a cinephile or whether you just really love going to you know, big... Wow, exhibitions. <laughs> you know, I was thinking, I mean, it's, it's on for a few months, isn't it, this? Yeah. And just thinking, you know, I, I took cinema studies way back when this is the kind of thing that I never got to see. And I yeah. imagine that, 
you will have some sort of a schools program too, will you, running through the exhibition this year? Or? Yeah, it's interesting. Thanks for reminding me. Actually, we will have a full public program um, and film program that run alongside the exhibition. So the exhibition is the centrepiece of Goddess, but the Goddess themes will run through our programming for most of the year. And uh, we will have a range of public programs that... Um, you know, include guests talking about the screen industry. Um, schools will obviously, there is a school program for um, for Goddess. They can book in and, and visit the exhibition. And there'll be film programs, so giving us an opportunity to see some of the films that are in the exhibition are actually quite hard to get, even with all the streaming platforms available right now. So, um, yeah, we'll be able to watch those at ACME. And there's also a publication, so... That's something that builds on the themes of the exhibition and, um, you know, goes off in directions that it's not easy to always contain within the sort of confines of a gallery space. So um, that the catalogue will be a really great companion piece as well. Yeah, because I was thinking about just the, you know, how you can put so much, um, so many people, personalities, characters from history in a single exhibition going back, you know, over 100 years, but but also sort of commenting on some way on the way that gender is represented in, in film and screen culture today. Is that something that might be sort of broadly um, explored through these kind of offshoot events and the like? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So we're looking at, um, yeah, having industry kind of symposiums we're looking at having um, we'll have a late night program where people can come in and enjoy the exhibition after hours but with um, programming that is sort of ties in with the exhibition and music produced by goddesses in the music industry yeah yeah. so there'll be kind of a really rich array of supporting programming that speaks to the to the same themes I mean we're fortunate to have Acme in this city and uh, this exhibition is entering internationally. It, are there many Acme-like places where it can just kind of go and be put on around the world or how does that work when you take something on tour? It's, well, there, I don't, I mean, there are some Acme-like places, mm. but um, what we find is that we have toured our exhibitions in the past to other museums and galleries. So, um, for instance, I think we were talking about uh, Wonderland went to to Papa in New Zealand and it's now over at the Western Australia Museum in Perth, or just closing, I think. Um, so there's a number of other museums and galleries that take the exhibitions and often, though, our um, touring team will go with the exhibition and help the museum set up um, all the, you know, the AV and the, the stuff that they might need to support the exhibition fully. Excellent. And so this uh, exhibition kicks off on the 5th of April, um, International Women's Day coming up, of course, this week on Wednesday. So very timely to have this conversation. When can people start to purchase tickets and, and plan their visit? Well, we, we you need to watch the space. So go to the ACME website and look out. We're hoping to make a series of, um, well, a really exciting announcement about the programming that will give some more detail, um, either tomorrow or Wednesday on International Women's Day. And our ticket sales will launch um, in tandem with that so it will happen in the next day or two 
Oh, you just head to the Acme website for more. And I did go there to check if the tickets were on sale and there is a give me more information button. So you can go and push that if you really don't want to forget or something and you've just heard this and you want to get along, go and press the button to find out more info when that announcement comes. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. And Dr. Britt Romstad, uh, Acme's Director of Experience and Engagement. And we've been speaking about the forthcoming exhibition called Goddess, Power, Glamour and Rebellion. It sounds amazing. Triple R. Coming up shortly, going to be chatting with Cool Sound Zone, Dana Lacey and Emma Russick, head of an event they're appearing at this Wednesday as part of Brunswick Music Festival. It's called Hyper Local Rage and they're going to have a chat and sort of share some of their favourite music videos that have inspired their aesthetic over the years. But um, ahead of that chat, we're going to get in the mood with a bit of music from Cool Sounds. You think likes more fun? We've got Danis and Emma joining us in studio. Hello. Hello. Yeah, good Hello. morning. Great to have you both here. Thanks so much for having us. Our absolute pleasure. And I suppose, in a way, like you're doing an in-conversation event on Wednesday, so this is a bit of a dry run. You can see how, how it works together. Yeah, get the uh, flex the vocal muscles. I think I might leave all the jokes to Emma. <laughs> see how that goes. How do you feel about that? Uh, you know, well, I'm pretty funny, so. <laughs> <Excellent>. <laughs> um, this is such a fascinating event. I mean, you're sharing music videos. Uh, how did it all come about? How did you sort of, you know, who had the idea for putting this on? Uh, I think it was um, Juliet who, who books the bees now. Um, I think, yeah, they, they wanted to put something on there that was a little bit different. I think that I think they also wanted to do it as kind of like a some sort of launch of their new band room, which may or may not be ready. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Is that why there's not a band playing on the night? You've got some, some tunes, some yeah, DJing going on. They've still got to get the PA yeah, sorted. Yeah, yeah. fine-tuned things. So. so how does it work? you sort of put music clips up and talk over the top of them or what's the sort of... Um, yeah, I think there'll be uh, clips playing, um, some sort of projector working, and then I think maybe uh, a Q&A or like brief questions about why we chose particular clips and whatnot. And I think there's a bit of a theme yeah. running throughout the clips that we didn't really think about, but it's kind of all the clips that we chose, I mean, at least for me, have like a DIY aesthetic. Yeah. So I think they're going to talk about, you know, why that's important to us and yeah. Excellent. Oh, I say you submitted them and then they've gone, oh, did you notice yes. there was a theme there? Yeah. Ah, how did that feel to see that, to to um, be, have that reflected back? Yeah, I mean, I guess I kind of thought about it because the clips are, like I've got this Kim Salmon video, um, it, the song's called I Won't Tell and um, it's just, it's just a shot of this woman in underpants just kind of grooving and the band are like in the background um, playing the instruments and it's kind of grainy and, and a lot of the foot, a lot of the clips that I chose, a lot of the footage is really grainy and um, like it was done on some kind of handheld camera. And then when I thought about my own clips, because we've got to play some of our own clips, um, I've definitely um, uh, done that myself. Like, you know, I've made a lot of clips myself on a handheld camera or on my laptop, um, you know, monitor camera. So I guess there's, I've been inspired by that sort of 
approach to music video clips. Yeah. Is that something you were conscious of? Like when you were making those clips and you have over the years, were you thinking, oh, I want to try and replicate that kind of aesthetic in the video? Or? Absolutely. A hundred percent. Like I remember, I think it's called Rage. Is it, is it called Rage or something, this event? Hyperlocal Rage. Hyperlocal Rage. So when Rage was a big thing in, I don't know, like when I was a teenager, Rage on a Friday and Saturday night, yeah. it was amazing. And there was one night when um, I think it was... The Black Keys uh, were were hosting it, and there was like Pavement, Gold Sounds, Cat Power, He War, um, all these amazing thing. I'd never seen anything like it, and it was all these like grainy style video clips. And um, it, as a teenager, it was like, whoa, this is like indie music, and um, it's not like that anymore. Which is, I don't know what it's like being a young person now, but. <laughs> It, it was it was pretty cool back then. I think you just watch it on Spotify or something when you're yeah. yeah. Most a lot of <laughs> lot of people are you know just go by my own children. They, of what you know that's where they see a lot of clips. They might go and seek it out on YouTube later, but yes. they they find it that way often and go yeah. whoa look at that yeah. But it was super exciting, wasn't it? It was kind of like having you know a great broadcaster sort of you know throwing down different tracks and they've curated it themselves. That's and right. when they had a great guest programmer, you kind of just couldn't go to bed because you wanted to keep seeing what they they threw up to you next. Exactly, and then you know you'd get your dad to tape it on the VCR and then you'd have it forever and you could watch it, you know, whenever you wanted. It was just such a different time. So that's why I've been kind of excited about doing this because um, it's it's a bit nostalgic for me at least. Yeah. And this is a bit younger than me, but... Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have the same feelings, but I also, I kind of, I also remember like, when I moved to Melbourne from Phillip Island, I was like finding out about all the great Melbourne music, like seeing like uh, the Ancients clips on Rage, you know, like super budget local yeah. stuff and like bands that I always thought were really kind of serious, like the, the Ancients, yeah. sort of doing like silly green screen stuff and just yeah. being like, this is awesome. And seeing like your old clips and like the Ocean Party's clips and stuff. And yeah. the fact that you could get your clips on the TV, you Wild. know, it yeah. was so <laughs> insane. It felt, it was so cool. Like, oh my God, my clip's going to be on Rage tonight. Wow, that's amazing. It's at, on, on at 4 a.m., <laughs> but you know, yeah. whatever. <laughs> I remember there was some like John Safran stunt where he, he'd strapped a camera to a dog to see if he could yeah. get that up on Rage and it made it. Yeah, it was in yeah, one of yeah. those shows he did over the years. Yeah, there was some pretty um, tapped content yeah <laughs> to uh, use a gen z uh term <laughs> and what about for you danison and cool sounds i mean how have you approached videos throughout the, the life of, of the band um yeah i mean i think it's like a mix of me trying to do something um sort of wild and too complicated on no budget and no time frame um so one of the clips i'm showing is this clip I did a few years ago for a song called Back to Me and I basically wanted to do a um, sort of a Honey, I Shrunk the Kids type spin and I, I storyboarded it all and I sent it to a bunch of uh, local filmmakers and everyone was like, no way, way too complicated. <laughs> <laughs> Cannot do that for $1,000 or whatever. Dennis, you should just <laughs> dance in your underwear in front of the band. And <laughs> Cheaper. So I sent it, uh, ended up sending it to a friend of mine, um, Jordan Thompson or Timeshare. He's done clips for both of us. And he was like, it's not wild or complicated enough. 
like give me 24 hours in the green screen and I'll, wow. I'll give you something i'll give you something good so yeah amazing so you just got someone who was as enthusiastic as you were to make yeah. it for you on a yeah. budget i think that's i think that's the way to do it and he's the king of green green screen <laughs> yeah on a budget i was yeah. gonna say did he was he behind the space and time clip of the yeah. from the perspective of a bee that's right around the room? Yeah. yeah so and he also did an emma and lachlan clip um not the wiggles um me and lachlan denton we have a duo together and we put a music video out uh for one of his songs called place of birth and lachlan plays this televangelist that's an excellent video and jordan made that too so everything is pretty much green screened um and yeah it it didn't cost us a lot of money so yeah are there some songs that lend themselves better to having a a clip made of them do you think yeah i think so i mean i've recently been sort of like getting into writing songs which are kind of conversational and i think um i was just watching a, a new andy shelf clip where it's like Jesus talking to God. And I think it like makes a lot more sense with the clip. Like just hearing the sound, like, what what is this all about? But um yeah, I think I think definitely like in um I don't know, kind of adding context to the song it can work. Yeah. Are you kind of thinking about that now as you write songs, how it could be represented visually? No. Not so much. It's all um it's all after, it's all post writing and recording that you start to think, all right, well, I've got to do a video clip. I mean, it's, there's less pressure on bands to do video clips now because, I don't know, there's no, there's not like your big rage or like there's just not, it's not a thing anymore, at least in my mind, it's just not a thing anymore. Um, but you kind of look at, look at all your songs that you've recorded and then you go, it's generally like the most catchy, the catchiest song on the, on the list. And you go, okay, how can we, what can we do with this song? And uh, yeah. And then you get someone who's prepared to do it for a lot of money and, um, and yeah, everyone's a winner. Yeah. What I loved about sort of dipping back into some of your videos um, ahead of, of today was how it seems like you have a whole lot of fun with it. Like that video with Lachlan where you're sort of smoking, sitting on the TV, watching the yeah. televangelist. And, um, and Danis, your, you know, your video of Hello, All Right, you got that, which is kind of this 70s aesthetic set in this kind of cool-looking house with a pool. Where was that house, by the way? How'd you uh, that's like a, a friend of mine's um, whose parents are architects in, wow. in Ballarat. They have this amazing place. Yeah, that was like... Um, that was supposed to be like a kind of rip of like a Vogue... Um, I can't remember what they're called. Um, some some amount of questions. Yeah, tw- uh, fifty questions. <laughs> 50 questions or yeah, where they where it's like they come in and they they ask uh, celebrity questions. Yeah. Yeah, and so is it just a whole lot of fun to produce? Given that there's not any often monetary payoff for producing a good video, is it something you just enjoy doing? The people you collaborate with. When it's um, when it's done in a really low key way, like another one of um our clips, my clips with Lachlan, we were just making pasta. And so we got our friend Eva to, to film us doing that. And so we had a really fun time. It's when it, when it gets a bit, um, stressful or not as enjoyable is when you got a makeup artist and you've got a stylist (laughs) and that's when it is not a lot of fun. Um, at least for me, I, I don't enjoy that kind of thing. Um, it's when you're just with your friends and you're just mucking around and having fun. Um, that's when it's a lot of fun. Yeah. 
So tell us how this is all going to sort of work on Wednesday night. What can people expect? Um, it's going to... That's a good question. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think basically it's going to be a lot like this and uh, we'll just watch, everyone will watch some of the videos and then there'll be like fade outs and then there'll be a series of questions put to us and we yeah. kind of talk about it um, in a relaxed way. Excellent. And then yeah. some tunes afterwards. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we're, we're going to be spinning some wax. <laughs> Not that I've ever done that before, but... Um... Have I you, guess it'll be interesting. Have you tipped off um, some of the people whose clips you're going to be using in the – sounds like what Rage used to do is say, you're going to be on at four in the morning. I haven't told Foo Fighters, Kat Carla or <laughs> oh, you haven't, yet. But, you haven't um, told them? No, no, I might the tag, tag them, them somewhere. Um, I'm Pope sure they'll really town, get, they they get them, get them yeah. down here, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, I haven't had the chance to get, reach out to them yet. What about you? No, I haven't. I don't think I've told anyone yet, but may, maybe I will. Maybe I'll tell Snowy to come down. Yeah. <laughs> Sneak peek. You're going to appear, mate. Come on. <laughs> You're well worth your while. <laughs> um, so what else is going on in the world of Emma Rusick and, and Cool Sounds? Uh, we're, we're playing a show the night after at Estonia House with uh, MD Mokta and then the night after it in Castlemaine wow. at the theatre, which I think will be fun. Yeah. I really love um, him and the, and the band, it's awesome. I've seen some clips of, of their um, performances around Australia and it looks like, yeah, it's going to be yeah. amazing down there. Yeah, really I'm um, excited to see, um, yeah, an amazing shredder. <laughs> and what about for you, Emma? I mean, you're sort of, you know, you're juggling work and music as a lot of people people yeah. do. What's, um... Shout out to the Morris Blackburn Raw team. Um, uh, I said I'd do that. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Um, I, I've got a couple of solo shows coming up. One this Saturday at uh, the retreat, and then there's another one coming up, but I haven't, can't remember what that is. But um, I'm also I'm going to start recording a new album this month, so that's exciting. And then Snowy Band is still doing stuff, and Emma and Lachlan are still doing stuff. So yeah, just a lot of a lot of fun. Video making as well, or is it just music at this stage? Uh, video making. I haven't thought about any video clips. But um, I mean, yeah, it's got to be, it's got to be a video clip there somewhere. It'll happen, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, um, you can head along and see Danis and Emma having a chat and sharing some of their favourite video clips uh, down at the B East this coming Wednesday, March seven. It kicks off March eight, I should say. Um, it kicks off at seven pm. The event is called Hyper Local Rage, happening as part of Brunswick Music Festival. And as you just heard, you can catch them playing in Melbourne over the next uh, week or so as well. Thanks so much for coming in. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.